This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Joining me on today's program in the second and third segments will be Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey is a prolific commentator, a best-selling author. He is a daily columnist for the Epic Times newspaper. Uh, many of you who are longtime listeners recognize Jeffrey as a returning guest to the program. In the second and third segments of today's show, I'm going to get his take on where the U.S. economy is, and we'll talk also about the state and health of liberty in the U.S. Now, if you don't yet have your request in to get my December 2023 client-only newsletter, I am making that available to all the listeners this month absolutely free. All you need to do to get a copy of that client-only newsletter is visit the website, requestyourreport.com. The website, again, requestyourreport.com. In this month's issue, I talk about a topic that I have been speaking about here on this program for oh, about a dozen years now, and that is this predictable economic cycle that we now find ourselves in. And I know that sounds a little bit hard to believe that the cycle in which we find ourselves is predictable, but in my view and from my uh, research and, and, and my study of history, I don't think you can come to any other conclusion. And I talk about that in the newsletter. Uh, where are we now and where are we going from here? So again, if you'd like to get a copy of that newsletter, absolutely free, visit requestyourreport.com. The website again, requestyourreport.com. Now, this cycle is essentially an inflationary period followed by deflation. And I'll be talking about this more in the second and third segments with Jeffrey Tucker as well. But certainly it's no surprise to anyone listening to today's program that we've had inflation. We've all experienced this firsthand. And certainly when you look at the real inflation rate and you compare it to the inflation rate that is reported, you have quite a disparity. Now, I wrote about this in my weekly newsletter this past week. And if you're not yet a subscriber, uh, you can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and sign up. I publish a weekly newsletter titled Portfolio Watch. And in this week's newsletter, I talk about the fact that when you look just at the price of groceries going back to January of 2020, on some select items, we've seen inflation of 34.3% since January of 2020. Now, Charles Hugh Smith, in his piece that he wrote, recently commented on this. So, for example, if you were going to go to the store and you had a shopping list that consisted of some orange juice, a 12-pack of soda, a pound of coffee, some white bread, some eggs, some yogurt, maybe a couple pounds of chicken breast, a, a pound of ground beef, a box of rice, so romaine lettuce, four large potatoes, milk, butter, and a banana bunch, and maybe a few tomatoes. In January of 2020, that trip to the store would have cost you $45.34. Now, as I said, it's probably not shocking to you that that same trip to the store, the one that cost you $45.34 in January of 2020, 
would cost you $60.90 in October of 2023. That's $15.56 more for the same exact items. Now, that's a 34.3% increase. So as far as groceries are concerned, if you were making $100,000 a year, which is a great salary in January of 2020, today you would need to make $134,000 to buy the same thing. Now, when you look at the official measure of inflation, the Consumer Price Index, or the CPI, as I'll talk about with Jeffrey Tucker in the next segment, the official measure of inflation since January 2020 is up 19%. So what is it? Is the grocery list that increased 34.3% the right number, or is the official measure of inflation up 19% the right number? Well, one of the ways that the inflation rate is calculated is to assign weightings to certain items. So Charles Hugh Smith pointed out that if you go back to 2008 and you take a look at various items like hospital services, for example, hospital services in the last 15 years are up 100 percent. Costs you about twice as much now for hospital services as it did 15 years ago. Medical care, care that you'll get from a medical professional, up 57.2%. College tuition costs, up 64.4%. That provides undeniable evidence that when you have easy credit, it creates a price bubble. Hospital services, medical care, and college tuition are all financed by insurance or loans for the most part. That allows these prices to go higher. But now what about food? Food and drink up 52.8% since 2008. Now the Consumer Price Index, the official measure of inflation since 2008, is up 42.2%. So if hospital services have increased at 100%, college tuition's up 64%, child care's up 62%, medical care's up 57%, food and drink are up 53%, and housing's up 48%, how is it that the rate of inflation is lower than all those increases? Well, the answer is waiting. You see, over that same time frame, software costs have dropped 50%. The cost of toys, down 56%. Mobile phone services, down 75%. And televisions, down 92.3%. So if you want to change the reported inflation rate, if you want it to appear more favorable, you simply increase the weightings of those items that have gone down in value, and you decrease the ratings of items that have gone up in value. So a quick example, if you take a look at hospital stay, medical care, you lump all that in one category, it consumes about 20% of gross domestic product. So about 20% of US uh, gross domestic product or economic output is comprised of medical spending. Yet when you calculate the CPI right now, the weighting is under 10%. 
Now, if you look at what the real impact of inflation has been, boat sales are down. Who buys a boat? Someone who has discretionary income. And yet, this year, there will be 269,000 new power boats sold and about 900,000 new ones. That's the lowest level dating back to 2011. You add those two numbers together, it's about 1.1 million. That's down from 1.4 million in 2021. RV sales, down also. The only segment of the RV market that is up is park model RVs. Those are up about 8% year over year. And just in case the nomenclature confuses you, park model RVs are mobile homes. In fact, if you review Google search terms presently, it will confirm that many Americans are looking to deal with inflation by looking for cheaper housing options. The Google search RV lot near me recently hit a five-year high. So we've had inflation, but following inflation, I predict, studying history, we will see deflation. Now, the newsletter that I'm offering you, along with a revised, updated copy of Revenue Sourcing this month, talks about this in detail, gives you uh, some strategies to consider also for your situation. I'll send you a copy of the December client-only newsletter immediately. And when the updated copy of Revenue Sourcing for 2024 is published, I'll be glad to send that to you also free of charge. Visit requestyourreport.com. Let us know where to mail both the newsletter and the book when it's available. Again, the website, requestyourreport.com. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. I've known Jeffrey for uh, a very long time, and he is the founder of the Brownstone Institute. Uh, the group does really terrific work. I'd encourage you to check it out. Lots of articles, lots of resources. The website is brownstone.org brownstone.org and uh, Jeffrey's also a daily columnist for the Epic Times and a very prolific writer and a very bright guy and I think lover of liberty is a good way to introduce him. So Jeffrey, welcome back to the program. Uh, It's nice to be here. Thanks so much, Dennis. I always like being on your show. Well, thank you. So so Jeffrey, let's just jump right in. Um, You know, when you take a look at uh, what's going on as far as U.S. government debt, uh, $2 trillion deficit, if you pull the off-book accounting shenanigans back on last year, $2 trillion deficit. Uh, election year coming up, probably larger. You, you, you tell me your opinion. $7.6 trillion of U.S. government debt will have to be now refinanced at likely higher interest rates. Is it just a matter of time before the Fed goes back and turns the printing press on, in your view? Um. We're starting to see some warming up to that idea uh, taking place. So your listeners are aware that inflation hardly 
gone. <laughs> the most recent data that we have shows uh, sticky price prices, which is a way to calculate CPI without energy and food prices, uh, coming in at 5.6, which is actually historically very high. And since 2019, we've lost about 20% of purchasing power of the U.S. dollar. But 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 already Washington has decided that the war on inflation has been won, and their kept media voices are all clamoring now about the dangers of deflation. I don't know if you bumped into that yet, but if you haven't, I have well. seen that. Yes, and then Powell's latest statement was. Uh, on the one hand, this. On the other hand, this, which is, I think, why most economists have two hands. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the warning about deflation. Oh, we have to stop deflation. Now, now, uh, deflation is not a danger. That's not to say some prices aren't going down in some areas, and that's that's a good thing. But overall, deflation is the last thing we have to worry about. But uh, to listen to CNN and and others, you'd think is the first thing to worry about. So. Uh, there's going to be a big campaign to get the Fed to reflate if to stop the danger of deflation. And this is just beginning. We're going to see this really ramped up over the next over the coming months about the dangers of deflation. Uh, now, if I if I said to your average listener, you know, would you like to be living in a world of 2019 prices? My guess is most everybody would say sounds great to me. You know, stronger dollar. Um, Sounds like a good thing, but from from the perspective of professional economists, they fear deflation more than anything else, and they think that uh, lower prices leads to uh, falling productivity instead of the opposite, which is true. So this is a major economic fallacy that's out there. So the fear of deflation is going to help the Fed um, uh, stop its campaign against inflation. And prepare it for the next round of a um, stimulus, which is is going to come uh, if things get really bad, especially if we have two successive quarters of uh, down GDP growth. At this point, too, Dennis, it's it really is time for us to start getting serious about about questioning these these data things. You know, whether it's the jobs report, CPI, or GDP. They're all those are the three top ones, and they're heavily man, man, manipulated at this point. You can't actually trust the press releases when they come out. Uh, the way it works is these agencies, which have typically historically been independent of politics, that's no longer true. Um, so the, all the media outlets rate to re, uh, race uh, to report the latest data when it comes out, and they report no more, no less than what the agencies themselves put in the opening. Press release of their of their jobs report, GDP report, or CPI report, and they do so faithfully, and then it's for quickly forgotten the next day. So it takes people, and I think maybe there's a half dozen in the world, actually, um, who are scrupulous to look through these reports and see and check, fact check them. I've been doing that more and more over the last uh, six months to a year, and I'm just in astonished shock at how the opposite seems to be true. And I'll just give you an example. I mean, the CPI, they're openly manipulating the weightings of the CPI these days to come up with the lowest possible number. And with GDP reports, they're they're adding 
you know, as much of government spending in to to keep the GDP above zero as possible. And the jobs report, they're 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 double and triple counting uh, multi job holders as new job creation and announcing those as job creation. You put the three together, and it seems like we'll never have a recession under these conditions. You know, and if the same agencies are in charge of reporting, if say a Trump gets to be president, I, president, I promise you, there'll be a recession declared within the first quarter of a Trump presidency. I promise you, that's that's exactly what's going to happen. They'll just re-manipulate the numbers and uh, and announce to the world that Trump's driving the economy down. That's what's going to happen. So this is the situation we're in. We can't even trust the numbers like we used to. So, Jeffrey, let's, you know, based on your research, you said you've been looking at this, you know, in, in a lot more detail over the last six months to a year. In your yeah. view, is the U.S. in a recession now? I mean, if you yeah. cut through all yeah. the clutter, are we in a recession? Yeah, I think we've been in a recession since March 2020 and never gotten out of it. Yeah, that's my view. And I know um, I've been writing this a lot and gone out of my way to demonstrate it in every possible way I possibly can. Um, and I've, nobody's ever contradicted me on this point because I think most people sort of intuitively understand that this is true, but it's somehow unsayable. But yeah, we're not going to have a soft landing because we never took off in the first place. So that's that's pretty much where we are. The um, um, I also I don't really anticipate that inflation is genuinely going to go down. Like there's no danger of deflation in any kind of serious way across the board. Uh, it's not even a. I, I wish it, I wish there were such a danger, but I don't. I don't think there is. Um, uh, uh, the job situation is tremendously terrible, Dennis. It's terrible right now. I mean, there's we're, we have a record number of multi-job holders and a record number last month. The uh, the data came in show, showing uh, uh, more full-time job losses in one month than we've seen since March 2020. So it's, things are getting worse all the time. And forget a world of, of yesteryear where a single income could support a full family, you know, uh, a modest uh, profession <clears throat> could support a full family. That's not even that's not even conceivable now. Young people uh, are in a ter- are looking at a terrible situation. It's no longer true that if you expect to go to college, you can be independent by say seventeen or eighteen. As I was not too long ago, I left home at seventeen and and never asked my parents for another dime. That's inconceivable now. Uh, so you've got kids coming out of school with six figures of debt, sometimes up to a quarter million dollars of debt, and still unable to uh, afford a house, um, and sometimes unable even to rent an apartment. And hardly anybody talks about this, but it's actually more difficult than it ever has been in our lifetimes, even to get a lease a basic lease on an apartment these days because the lending said the standards for signing leases are so tight as a result of the rental moratoriums of 2020 that it's extremely difficult for young people even to find a place to live. So more and more young people are just moving home. It's it. And you got to think about it this way, Dennis. I mean, like the, 
the tr- our training that you would get in what it's like to balance the checkbook, live within your means, be a responsible adult, and so on and so on, <clears throat> came for my generation, came after you leave, you leave the household, right? You're kicked out of the nest, and then you figure out your way. Well, what if you never really kicked out of the nest? What if, you know, mama bird and baby bird are feeding you worms forever, and you stay in the nest? That seems to be the situation. You've got a whole generation now under 30 that doesn't even know what it means to be free and independent of, of the system. They're on one or another form of welfare with no prospect of getting out of it um, until, like, middle age, if they're lucky. So, you know, this is the situation we're in. It's uh, young people, uh, that's a whole, a whole generation that does not know the meaning of freedom or independence. They can't even conceive of it. They don't even aspire to it because it's, it's not even possible for them. So that's, that's the bigger picture. It's a serious, major problem for this country. So, so Jeffrey, as you were talking, I'm just wondering, in your view, does the situation you just described reconcile the fact that there's been a lot of job losses and we still have this tight labor market. Every employer I talk to is so frustrated because they yeah. cannot find good people to work for them. Is, is that the reason that we're seeing that? Uh, yeah. And, and the crucial word here is good people to work for them, right? I mean, that's the issue. There's plenty of people that want to take a check, but people that show up on time and actually do valuable work that's, that's a different matter entirely. Those are really hard to come by these days because the entitlement mentality uh, among so many people under the age of 30 or really is starting to be under 35 or even 40 is so intense. They think the money just grows from trees and they shouldn't have to do any work. And, uh, and I get job applications all the time. And you know what the job applications uh, look like these days? I mean, it's, it's incredible. They, they write me and say things like, I've decided I want to work for you. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, really? Why is that? Well, I've decided looking at my life right now that I really want to have a money, meaningful, uh, more meaningful job, and so I'm willing to work for you. And, you know, what am I supposed to do with this? It, like, do you not know what a job is? Job a job means doing valuable things for others in exchange for which you're paid, okay? That's what a job means. I don't think that a lot of people really understand that anymore. They think a job means just signing on the dotted line and collecting checks forever. I mean, that's, that's genuinely the view. And that view comes about because that has been the way things have worked for the last, 15 or 20 years. We have a whole class of people that's been raised with this perceptions that that uh, the money just flows and flows and flows. It's all fake anyway. It's all a matter of uh, <clears throat> choosing uh, which team you want to work on. You choose, and then the, the money flows. Anyway, I don't believe the situation is going to last, and it's dying right now, and it's going to be a shock to an entire generation of people. And they're going to be angry, and are they going to turn to... Uh, capitalism and work ethic and savings? I don't think so. I, I suspect they're going to turn to more anger, more entitlement, uh, more schemes for trying to get more money for free. Well, the clock says we have to leave it there. My guest today is Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. He's the founder of the Brownstone Institute. 
Uh, you can learn more at brownstone.org. He's also a daily columnist for the Epic Times. I'd encourage you to check out his work there as well. I'll be back after these words with my special guest today, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Kubergen. I have the pleasure of chatting today with returning guest, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. If you're just joining me, Jeffrey is the founder of the Brownstone Institute. I'd encourage you to check out their work at brownstone.org. He's also a daily columnist for the Epic Times. And uh, Jeffrey, you know, you've done uh, uh, more books than I can recite over the years, but one of the central themes of all your books is liberty. And uh, as someone who looks at the world from a libertarian uh, perspective, so we know there's at least two of us left, um, what, what, what would you rate or how would you rate the, the, the health of liberty uh, in the United States? Well, I can tell you this, uh, a, a real harbinger, I guess that's the word, of, of whether you're free is, is whether you're censored. And the censorship is getting worse all the time. Uh, so I routinely have videos taken down from YouTube. YouTube is owned by Google. Google is the most important company in the world, probably controlled by the CIA. And they're deciding what you can and cannot say, what gets on the internet, what doesn't. Uh, It's definitely a deliberate attempt to shape the public mind, uh, to make views like those that we hold uh, deprecated and irrelevant and hard to find compared to... um, uh, to, um, you know, their views, which is a, a new managerial class that co- believes it controls the world. So I think I think liberty in general is in extremely sad shape, com- uh, starting with free speech and going all the way down to our economic freedoms. Um, and I worry that people do not understand why. And it's I, I'm starting to d- deal with the thesis a little bit, which I wrote about for Epoch Times tomorrow, <clears throat> that we really do live with uh, two competitive uh, federal governments, one right against the other. Uh, one is a kind of a coup-plotting coup Great Reset government that seized control of the country in March 2020. They have all their own agencies, their own managerial classes, their own uh, ideologies their own agendas, and they are set against a kind of a legacy government of career civil service people occupying the old agencies like the Department of Labor, Department of Agriculture, but the new agencies are things like CISA, the Cybersecurity Information Security Agency, uh, the FDA, and so on, so on. So it, this, it, so liberty is being squeezed uh, from both these angles. Uh, one is a great reset uh, sort of shadow government, hardly in the shadows anymore. It's actually very much out in the open. And then we've got the old legacy government. And and any kind of political reformer that is trying to do something about this problem needs to distinguish between the two and, and make a priority uh, to get rid of the sort of deep state control that's censoring our speech and surveilling our finances and really trying to turn America into a CCP kind of uh, 
uh, dictatorship, really, is what is what they're after. And of course, they hate Trump because they're afraid he's going to de- demolish all this. I, I'd like to think they're they're right to be afraid of it, but but it's become very urgent, uh, Dennis. And my worry is that we've got to fix this problem uh, like right away. And by this problem, I mean uh, just the pervasive controls that are in universities and the media and all these new agencies that have been established since 2018 and so on, or else we're never going to get our liberties back. So, Jeffrey, looking ahead, 2024 is an election year. When you look ahead and ponder what the potential outcomes could be, uh, do you see any hope? Do you find any reason to be optimistic in your opinion, or does it make you pessimistic in the way you view, you know, the immediate future? Well, I have to be a natural optimist, uh, or else I wouldn't, I wouldn't be writing every day. Um, I, I like to believe I can make a difference, but, but the American people need to understand what a deep crisis we're in. And in fact, I think people do understand this more and more so. Uh, much more so than ever before in my lifetime. Um, it's uh, people are very angry. They see their standards of living declining, their liberty uh, on the rocks, and it's it's a major issue. And and people want to do something about it. What precisely to do about it is another question because I'm not sure that any of the existing candidates they all have their merits, but I'm not sure anybody of them any of them are fully aware of the extent of the problem. So when you take a look at how this uh, presidential race is shaking out, um, the dynamic's really interesting. It seems like uh, the more legal charges that are filed against Trump, the more popular he becomes. You've got Manchin talking about a third-party run. I read this morning that Liz Cheney almost laughably is talking about a third-party run. Uh, RFK Jr. talking about a third-party run. Um you know, this is this has the potential to be just a, a really unique, uh, I'll even use the term weird, political year, doesn't it? Uh, it sure does. Now, uh, third-party runs in our kind of democracy, which uh, we have a weird democracy compared to around the world, uh, we have a system whereby if you win the election, you take all. It's a winner-take-all kind of situation. And the logic of voting would normally take a winner-take-all situation and, and default it back to two parties. So I'm not so sure that a third party has any chance to do anything except for perhaps spoil the election. <clears throat> RFK was the first to declare his uh, third party run as an independent. And God bless him. I know he didn't want to do that, but it was like, well, what choice does he have? But now you're seeing other people jump in as a way of blunting his impact, uh, spreading more and more chaos. So it's getting a, and I suppose Trump is going to get the nomination for the Republicans, but you, you can't be sure about that. You know, don't forget these polls have been wildly inaccurate in the past, and we have not yet seen a single vote cast. So I'm, I wouldn't count uh, DeSantis out entirely. On the other hand, if you're really, really, really mad right now and you just want chaos, Trump is your guy, right? And so there's a reason why uh, the New York Times is now saying there's a real chance that not only he'll get the nomination, but that he'll win the presidency. So, which is crazy when you consider the number of federal indictments he's under and, the you know, his crazy talk and everything. But that's the thing. A lot of uh, voters just want an agent of chaos in power right now. 
Uh, they're super excited about it. <clears throat> so that's, well, and that's Jeffrey, a real possibility. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at the, the recent elections in uh, the Netherlands, in uh, Argentina, it seems that this is a kind of a global issue, that the world is just yeah. angry, and, and, they're, and they're looking for change, and they seem to be looking uh, to the right because now things tend to be leaning left. And, and is that kind of the way you see things? Yeah, and, and and what that's going to amount to in practice, we're still kind of waiting to see. Um, Mile in Argentina is a very interesting guy and a friend of mine, and uh, that sort of thing. But he's also facing a lot of pressure right now to moderate his views. Uh, the Wall Street Journal this morning runs a big front page article congratulating him for dialing back some of his more extreme positions on abolishing government agencies and so you know, I, I don't think it's going to happen this time around where we're going to get some really good reforms. But um, I think it's eventually going to happen. And I'm not entirely sure what that looks like, but we can't continue on the first on the track we're on right now. And I don't believe we, we can or we will. Um, we've got all over the world a tiny little managerial techno, technocratic, bureaucratic professional class that's running the governments of the world. And average people are trying to pick up on this, you know, and they're very angry about it. So it's a question not whether our existing political systems are really capable of, of handling the sort of reforms that are really necessary. And I don't, I don't think we know what that looks like yet. Um, let's keep in mind that <clears throat> history is not much of a guide here because we've actually never seen uh, in history, uh, advanced industrialized uh, um, democracies uh, do a fundamental reform that abolish agencies, routes the deep state, uh, reduces the, the public sector, and lets free enterprise flourish. We've never actually seen that happen. I mean, Reagan and Thatcher did a pretty good job in the early 1980s, but they were moderate compared to what we need uh, today. So we don't, we don't really know what this looks like. And it's fascinating to me because I lived through, as I think you did, um, the collapse of the Soviet Union and all the uh, states in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. so yeah, absolutely. In 1989 and 1990. So we kind of know what that looks like uh, a little bit. And each state was a little different, but they just kind of gave up. You know, they just lost public consensus, and they just sort of headed for the hill, hill, hills, and, and the big shots became little shots very quickly. Um, so we sort of know what that looks like, but we don't know what that looks like in wealthy, highly industrialized, uh, democratic countries like our own. What, is, what, is, what does a collapse look like? Does it mean <clears throat> a breakup of large nation states like the U.S.? You know, is it, um, is it come down to mass disobedience? You know, we, we don't actually, we don't actually, or is there a, a way to calmly reform these systems? Uh, we don't know yet. So this is, I would say, one of the great intellectual challenges of our generation to figure this out and to kind of lay out a, a map for how rational, reasonable peaceful reform could actually happen. And we're just not, we're not sure if that's possible yet. So last question, Jeffrey, we've got another couple of minutes in this segment. Uh, earlier, you stated that, you know, you think that the world as, as uh, 
did this reset as these problems come to a head. You, you don't think that necessarily they'll look at capitalism and freedom as a solution. Where do you think they will look for a solution? How do you see this playing out? Uh, well, they're going to be uh, it's going to be a mad scramble to find money that doesn't exist. <laughs> That's the big problem right now. Everybody wants resources. Everybody wants wealth. And it's just nowhere to be found um, uh, in the U.S. Or th- there's a little bit to be found, but there's ever l- less of it. And the job prospects are going down. The money's running out. Um, we're burning the candle at both ends. Um, it, it, it's going to be a serious problem. And I just don't see any other solution other than a whole generation rediscovering the work ethic. <clears throat> you know, Dennis, and you think about this all, all the time, and a lot of people do. I recently returned from Mexico, and I was really struck by something that I saw in that country. And and just to be clear, the, the border immigration problems we have is not a Mexican problem. It's a problem from all over the rest of the world. They just happen to be choosing the Mexican border. The Mexican people are pretty darn happy in Mexico, actually. <laughs> you know, so it's... it's this is not a problem that that we face. Um, but the thing that struck me the most, more than anything else, uh, when I got off the airplane, got into my Uber, started dri- driving to the to the central uh, center of Mexico City where I was staying, was just the the sheer busyness of the place. Everybody was sleeping. Everybody was working. People was cleaning sidewalks. There's bustling people running here and running there and. Re- there wasn't anybody, and you, there's not a homeless problem uh, at all, and there's not a laziness problem in Mexico. <clears throat> the work ethic is extremely pervasive. I saw the same thing when I was in South Korea some years ago. I was just, it's like a little bit mind blowing. If you're an American, and now you live in the Midwest, maybe it's different than the Midwest. I live in the Northeast. I can tell you, laziness is the name of the game in the U.S., as far as I can tell. Um, the contrast between this country and places like Korea and Mexico and many other places in the world, it's just simply the willingness to work hard, the enterprising spirit of the people. That has been drained from American culture. Um, maybe not everywhere, but in most places. It's massively diminished compared to other places. And that's what we need to rediscover. And if I was going to give any one piece of advice, to uh, parents and grandparents today, figure out a way to instill the work ethic in the young, because they're going to need it in the future. That sort of hard driving, willingness to suffer, to sweat, to get skills and put them to good use as soon as possible. That will give you an advantage in the uh, in the world we're facing in the future. Because let's face it, <clears throat> most people just simply do not have that anymore. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. My guest Tucker. He is the founder of the Brownstone Institute. Check out the articles uh, that the Brownstone Institute publishes on their website at brownstone.org. Also, check out Jeffrey's daily column with the Epic Times. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us today. Love to have you back down the road. And you and yours have uh, happy holidays. Thank you so much for having me, Dennis. You take care. We will return after these words.
Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen, and thanks again to my special guest today, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker, for joining me on today's program. You know, if you're just tuning in, I want to give you an opportunity to request my December client-only newsletter in which I discuss in detail this predictable economic cycle that we now find ourselves in, uh, in my view. We are in a cycle, I believe, of inflation followed by deflation. And in the first segment of today's program, I talked about inflation. In this segment, I want to talk a bit about the effects of inflation, just using the data that's available. Before I get into the data, before I get into what I want to talk about in this segment, let me remind you to get the December client-only newsletter. You just need to visit requestyourreport.com. And when you request that report by going to the website, I'll also get you a copy of the newly revised for 2024 Revenue Sourcing Book. Uh, Again, the website is requestyourreport.com. So the, the data that I want to share with you in this segment, the facts indicate that consumers are now collectively reaching the end of their proverbial rope, to use that term. Credit card debt is still growing. Data tells us that credit card loans went up 1.6% in October over September. That's in one month. Seasonally speaking, as we get into the holiday season, you see an increase of 0.7%. So we're more than two times that level. And as far as paying down credit card loans, fewer people are doing that. When you look at the average rate of 30-day-plus delinquencies across the big five credit card lenders, you saw delinquencies jump 0.16% from September to October. Normally, it's 0.06%, so delinquencies are up almost triple. And charge-offs, meaning the banks just say we're never going to get this money, Charge-offs jump 0.7% on average. That's compared with what is typical for this time of year of 0.18%. So charge-ups are up almost 400%. So credit card debt is up more than double what it would normally be going from September to October. Delinquencies are up almost triple, and charge-offs are up almost quadruple. What does that tell you? about the state of the typical American consumer. But it doesn't stop there. The Federal Reserve Bank of Boston found that consumers with household incomes of less than $50,000 whose accounts were delinquent were on average already utilizing 80 to 90% of their available credit. They were almost maxed out on their cards and they're delinquent. That means these consumers don't have a cushion. And if you look at what's happened to savings over the past few years, it's really mind-blowing. Aggregate savings peaked at $2.1 trillion in August of 2021, partially due to economic shutdown, so people couldn't spend money, so they saved money, partially due to a lot of government stimulus floating around. But if you think about it, aggregate savings of $2.1 trillion in August of 2021 
In June of 2023, just 22 months later, aggregate savings dropped to $190 billion. In other words, Americans spent $1.9 trillion in savings in just 22 months. And then by the data we just looked at, they turned to plastic. And hardship withdrawals from retirement accounts are also up. According to Fidelity Investments, 2.3% of workers took a hardship withdrawal from their retirement accounts last quarter. That's up from 1.8% a year earlier. Currently, one in six workers has an outstanding loan on their 401k. Those bits of data relating to credit card debt, savings levels, and hardship withdrawals from a retirement account has us conclude that the economy is not in great shape. Our economy is dependent upon consumer spending. So I'd encourage you to educate yourself. That's what our December client-only newsletter does. You can go to request your report to request the newsletter. And when you do, I'll also send you a copy of the Revenue Sourcing Book updated for 2024 as soon as it's available. So again, the website, requestyourreport.com, requestyourreport.com. That's all the time I have for this week, but I'll be back again next week. Have a great week.